Hey there, humanoids. This is David Shoemaker here with a very exciting announcement. Your favorite wrestling podcast feed, The Ringer Wrestling Show, is now going daily. And you can hang out with me and Kaz on Mondays and Thursdays for The Masked Man Show. And you can join me, Peter Rosenberg, alongside stack guy Greg and Dip every Tuesday with Cheap Heat. And on Fridays, I'll welcome a friend or special guest from the world of wrestling. And on Wednesdays, we have a very special new show called Wednesday Worldwide that you're going to want to check out. Pay-per-view reaction, one-of-a-kind interviews, fantasy booking, talking about bagels. That's what we do here on the Ringer Wrestling Show. Follow the show now on Spotify and do us a favor. Give us five stars. And do us another favor and uh, stay mage. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. April showers bring a loaded sports calendar, and FanDuel is the place to bet on it all. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and get paid instantly when you win. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit RG help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. After a thrilling win for the Celtics, I shouldn't even say thrilling, a blowout win, a stress-free win for the Celtics. We needed this over the Miami Heat, so Game 6 will be coming up on Saturday. We'll recap that game in just a second. Will Fleming from the Red Sox broadcast crew, play-by-play man for the Red Sox, he's going to join us in a little bit as well, and we'll get into everything going on with the Red Sox right now as they're in a little bit of a funk. But coming up next, we'll get into this great win for the Celtics. We have ourselves a series, baby. I'm Brian Barrett from Off the Pike and coming to you for the local angle on FanDuel TV as well after the Celtics with a second consecutive win over the Miami Heat. They are back in the series. It goes from 3-0 to three games to two. And the Celtics have a real opportunity at history here. First and foremost, there are five reasons I believe the Celtics are back in this series, okay? And we saw all of them on display in the game on Thursday night. And you're going to need all these things again to get that game six win in Miami coming up on Saturday. Number one, Jason Tatum was the best player on the floor. And this is now becoming a trend for Tatum. And I know he wasn't great until the final five minutes or so of that game six against Philadelphia, but Tatum has been really good in elimination games. If you look at the last two elimination games prior to the game five, game seven against the 76ers, we all know what happened there, the 51 points. Game four against Miami, he goes for 33 points. So in those two games prior to the game five, 84 points, 31 of 50, 62% from the field, 10 of 19, 52.6% from deep, 24 rebounds and 12 assists. And look, he didn't have the crazy scoring outburst in this one, but he completely controlled the game. He finished eight of 16 from the field, 11 assists and the 11 rebounds. And now it's 18 assists in the last two games, in games four and games five. The thing that has happened here, 
is he has completely figured out how to handle these double teams of the Miami Heat and how to attack mismatches in this series. The Celtics were getting shots just off his gravity and presence in this game. So let's think back to some of those doubles, right? So I'm just going to run through a couple of them in this game. So early in the game, he's doubled. He finds Al Horford. Al then finds Jalen. Jalen hits a wide open three to make it 9-5, which was necessary. They need to get Jalen going. That's a wide open corner three for Jalen. Then he was doubled. He finds Grant. Grant gets to the free throw line, makes one of two. Then Struess goes with Tatum, and it's not even as if Tatum had the ball. Tatum's just moving. Struess goes with him because of the attention Tatum is forcing the heat to put on him, and that leaves Derek White for a wide open three. He makes it 32-18 at the time, and then White gets another three off a Tatum double. Then he drives and he finds Al for a long two when he's double teamed again. Then he finds Smart on the short roll, right? Smart sets the screen. He rolls. Two guys blitz Tatum. Finds Marcus Smart. Smart with a really easy push shot to make it 67-48. And then again, he found Grant Williams for an open three on a double team. Then he drove. He was doubled. And he finds Derek White for an open three. So just by my math alone, those plays, those are 20 points that the Celtics scored just off double teams of Jason Tatum. That is reading the defense. So Tatum is destroying the Heat defense right now by making the right decisions. And those are all points coming off double teams. And remember, he also had 21 points in the game. And this is just the double teams. This isn't just counting for when he drives hard and he finds an open guy for a dunk or finds an open guy for a shot. These are just the double teams. And this is something that cannot be underestimated. He has such a difficult job. He's running everything the Celtics do. And he did it to perfection in this game. He did it really well in game four, but he's really cracked the code on everything the Heat are trying to do to him defensively. So that's number one. Jason Tatum, by far the best player in the past two games. He's going to have to do it again in the game on Saturday. The second reason the Celtics won and they're back in this series is the guards were absolutely tremendous in game five. And I was not personally crazy about Jalen's game. I know he had a better game than he's had recently, which wouldn't be too difficult because he was really bad in the series up until game five. But I thought he forced a lot of shots in the third quarter, maybe just trying to get himself into rhythm. But he was not great in this game. But Derek White and Marcus Smart were flat out outstanding. So let's start with Derek White. What a difference a year makes with this guy. He has 24 points in game five. And if you just look at the three point shooting from Derek White. If you go to the series last year against Miami, he was 7 of 21, so 33.3% of the series, and four of those makes came in game six. So in the other five games he played in, because he missed one due to the birth of his child, he hit just three total threes. And remember, it was not just he was missing threes, he was scared to shoot, and it sort of rendered the Celtics offense ineffective because the ball would just stop because he wouldn't shoot. Not anymore. Derek White has now hit at least three threes in each game of the series. And in that game five, how many threes did he hit? Six. Six of them. Derek White, six of eight from three-point territory. So now he is 18 of 31, 58.1% from deep. And the thing about it is that he's taken the 31 in the five games. So he has the confidence. He took 21 in six games last year. He's already taken 31 in this series. So it's confidence. Last year, he was afraid to shoot. And it messed up the Celtics offense. And now with Malcolm Brogdon dealing with this tear in the tendon between his elbow and his wrist that forced him to leave this game, did not return. You're going to need somebody else to hit these threes because Malcolm Brogdon was a top five three-point shooter in the league this season. Derek White clearly right now has stepped up and he's that guy. And we all know he brings a lot on the defensive side of the floor. Now, Marcus Smart. I really felt like he set the tone from the jump in this game. 
He ripped Bam out of bio, and then he found Tatum for an easy basket to make it two to nothing. Right away, he brought the defensive intensity. He finished with five steals. Like, this looked like Marcus Smart, the defensive player of the year. And a couple things that stick out to me about those steals. Let's get to, he had a steal on Jimmy, where this was just a really heads-up play by Marcus Smart. Duncan Robinson, he was the one thing they had going offensively, and they were doing that little dribble handoff game with them. Marcus sniffed that out, stole the ball from Jimmy, and they got free throws the other way. Now, he hit one of two, but nonetheless, it's just the point that he sniffed out the handoff. And then, two plays later, he gets a steal on Bam, and he finds Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum then hits Marcus for an open three, but that whole possession starts because of the steal that Marcus has on Bam Adebayo. Those are their two best players that Smart stole the ball from. And then offensively, he made four threes, and they weren't forced threes, right? Which sometimes Marcus Smart has the propensity to take some shots that you'd say, hey, Marcus, you probably shouldn't shoot that, but it's open threes. Two of them came off double teams from Jason Tatum. So that's just really smart by Marcus Smart to make the right decisions and not force anything. And then offensively, I just feel like he made a couple of hustle plays where he had an offensive rebound against the zone, which led to a wide open three for Jalen. And then... Al Horford got switched on to Kyle Lowry in the post. Mark is just like, okay, let me give it to the big man, even though he doesn't play in the post anymore. And what does Al Horford do? He gets a real easy dunk over Kyle Lowry. That's just smart basketball. And then he found Jalen Brown in semi-transition to make it 65-46, where it's just like, I got to get Jalen going, and he does that. And then he had a nice little floater off the Tatum double team. So just a really, really nice floor game from Marcus. So if you look at the guards, white and smart, they outscore Lowry and Struess 47 to 29. So plus 38 for the Celtics backcourt. And what we're seeing is this Vincent injury for Miami hurts them a lot worse than the Brogdon one does for the Celtics because obviously the Celtics have the depth of having Smart and having Derek White. And the Heat right now, they really don't have depth as it pertains to their guards with the hero injury. We'll see if he ever comes back for that game seven. And I know they'll say that Vincent's going to play in game six, but we'll see. He didn't play in game five. And that turn looked really bad. And here was the problem for Miami. They have been really good with Vincent on the floor. Prior to game five, they had a plus 11.8 net rating. So they're outscoring teams by nearly 12 points per 100 possessions with Vincent on the floor. With Vincent off the floor, that number was at minus 10.9. So the on-off differential in terms of points per 100 possessions with Vincent was 10 point or it was 22.7. So that's a massive number just in terms of the raw numbers, plus 34 with him on, minus 12 with him off prior to this game. So they need a healthy Vincent because they don't have enough playmaking and shooting without him. And Lowry, I think we can all agree, he looked absolutely cooked in game five. Okay, so the guards, Tatum, the guards, the third reason the Celtics won, and they need to keep doing this if they want to win the series, they brought the necessary effort defensively. And I referenced some of the smart steals but how about Rob at the end of the first half, or I should say the end of the first quarter, he blocks Jimmy Butler on a three, like right in front of him, he blocks a three. You do not see that. 19 seconds left, you go the other way and you score. And then how about Grant? He got switched on to Kyle Lowry, which is a difficult matchup for a bigger guard, even though, like I said, Lowry is not the same player that he once was. But to stay with Lowry and then block his shot, that's a big play. And then some of the other things you just look at, this team was on a string. They were connected, and we've seen at times throughout this postseason, they haven't been, and they certainly were tonight. So if you look at the Heat in that game five, 97 points on 86 possessions, that's a 111.6 offensive rating. Only five teams this season were lower than 112. So that's horrendous. That is bad offense. And we know the Celtics are capable of this. If you look at it now, defensive rating when the Celtics hold a team south of 114, 
They are now 8-0 and in the postseason. When it's north of 114, it's 1-8. and And by the way, now that south of 114 has increased to 9 because they won the game 5. So they've now done this 9 times. We have seen that they can bring this type of effort on the defensive side of the floor. So what it tells you is they can do this again. They just did it in back-to-back games. They can certainly do it again. They have the defensive personnel. It's never been an issue in terms of the personnel with the Celtics as it pertains to their defense. It's just been the effort, and it was clearly there in the game five. So that is massive. Okay, so that's the third reason, the defense. The fourth reason is just the fact that you look at the fact that the Celtics, it's not just Derek White shooting the threes. It's everybody else as well. They were 16 of 39 from deep. That's 41%. And it's not just because they're bombing threes, right? They want to get to that 40 number in terms of the attempts. They only got to 39, but they were good attempts. That's why they hit 16 of them, right? And there's a magic number for the three-point shooting as well. 13 or more, the Celtics are 10-2. and two. And of course, as we alluded to, 16 in this game. When they hit 12 or fewer, they're 0-6. So they get to that magic number of the 13 tonight. And that's just the quality of them, right? That's a really high-quality shooting team when they're shooting in rhythm, and they were in Game 5. Okay. And the last reason in terms of why this team can overcome this deficit and make history is if you look at the two teams, the Celtics during the regular season, they were number one in the entire NBA in point differential in terms of plus 535. The Heat were 21st. They were outscored this season by 26 points. So the Celtics, if you look at that differential, it's 561. They were 561 points better than the Heat during the regular season. So... What we've seen over the past two games, they look like the far superior team and the threes are finally starting to go down for the Celtics. They've now outscored the Heat by 54 points in the past two games from three-point territory. So it may have seemed impossible at the beginning of this whole thing, but if a team was going to come back from this massive deficit, it would be a team that had the clear advantage from a talent perspective which the Celtics do, and a team on the other side that at times this season has really struggled to score. And what we've seen, the Celtics, even with the Brogdon situation, they have the health advantage going forward in this series as well. So I believe this series is going seven games, and I like the Celtics to win it. I know game seven can be crazy. I like the Celtics to win Saturday, and I believe we're getting a game seven at the Garden. All right, a lot more coming up on the local angle. You'll hear from the guys from the Philly Special on James Harden, his future, and the Sixers coaching staff. Plus, Jason Goff will get you caught up on what's going on in Chicago. And our buddy John Jastrzemski will break down everything going on in New York. All right, a couple of other notes I wanted to get to from this game. First of all, the Celtics did something they didn't do a lot of the season. They actually forced turnovers defensively. And some of them are just like we've lived through this as Celtics fans, right? Where they have so many dumb fucking turnovers in the postseason over the past two years. How many times did Jalen dribble the ball off his foot last year? And even this year as well. But... Tonight, it was the opposite. It was the Heat that were turning the ball over. And at times, the Heat were the team making dumb turnovers. At one point, Bam just lost the ball. At another point, Lowry just kind of dropped the ball. I'm like, wait, is this Jalen Brown or Kyle Lowry? Anyway, so if you look at it in terms of the season, the Celtics, or I should say the Heat during the regular season, or the Celtics, I should say, during the regular season, they averaged 12.7 opponent turnovers per game. That was just 26 in the NBA. So the Celtics don't force turnovers at all. During the postseason, that number has been low as well, 12.5, which is 11th of the 16 teams. In this game tonight, the Heat had 16 turnovers. 
And if you just look at it in terms of the regular season, they were really good not turning the ball over. 13.5 per game, which was the ninth fewest. And Golden State led the league at 16.3. The Heat are almost there tonight with the 16 turnovers. So the Heat were turning the ball over like the Warriors. And the Warriors can live with the turnovers because they're such a potent offensive team. The Heat certainly cannot. And if you look at it, they had 10 at half. And if you look at the points off turnovers, right? The Celtics in this game had 17 points off of turn, or I should say they had 27 points off of turnovers in the game. They had 17 at halftime. And if you look at it in terms of the season, the Raptors led the league at 21. So the Celtics were six points better than the league's best in terms of the points off turnovers. And the Celtics were not great in terms of points off turnovers during the regular season, 15.9, which was 22nd. So the reason I reference all this with the turnovers is first and foremost, like I began this whole thing with, it's just nice to see the Celtics be on the other side of this because I cannot tell you how many times over the past two years we've talked about the turnovers for the Celtics. It's nice to talk about them from Eric Spolstra's team, right? They're always causing the Celtics turnovers. Now it's like, holy shit, this is great when the other team does this, right? When the other team is sort of in their own head and it did look like the Heat were trying to do too much because the Celtics built up that lead, right? And so the big other part of this is the Celtics, as we've alluded to, they are clearly the more talented team. They are significantly better on offense. And if you're forcing the heat into these issues, and a large portion of it is it goes to the heat as well. They were just not smooth as it comes to their offense. They didn't protect the ball. But if the Heat are going to turn the ball over like this, they have no chance. We've seen the Celtics overcome some of these issues with the turnovers and still win, even though they make you rip your hair out. The Heat cannot operate that way. They cannot live that way. They do not have the talent, especially with all the injuries they're dealing with right now. Okay. And on the flip side, you know how many turnovers the Celtics had in this game? Just 10. 10 turnovers for your Boston Celtics. Again, your Boston Celtics, just 10 turnovers. We are just talking about the turnovers two games ago. The Raptors led the league this season in terms of the fewest turnovers per game, 11.7. The Celtics were at 10. So why is that number so important besides the fact you're just not gifting the Heat possessions? So the Celtics in the three losses in this series, they had 15 turnovers exactly in each of those losses. If you look at it during the regular season, only seven teams average more than 15, 15 or more turnovers per game. Only seven. So that's really bottom territory in the league. The Celtics did that in all three of their losses in this series. The two wins, 10 and 10. So when you protect the ball, the Celtics can't lose if they protect the ball. Now, like granted, if they missed all their shots, but I'm just saying realistically, if the Celtics do not turn the basketball over, and especially if they stay at that 10 number, which is better than the league's best offense in terms of turning the basketball over this season when it comes to the Toronto Raptors, the Heat cannot beat them. The Heat need to win on the margin. So it's just so imperative that they can do this going forward. And I alluded to sort of the Tatum double teams earlier. I give Joe Mazzula credit because Tatum, when he turned it over, it tended to be where there was more pressure on him defensively. And one of the things they're doing, you're seeing what Tatum's doing, and I'm sure this is coached into him, not to take anything away from the player, but he's getting rid of it really quick. So there's always like an outlet. I feel like the Celtics have done a much better job having an outlet there, even if it's not leading to the shot directly. Like right out of the double, he's like, oh, here's the ball, Al. Al may have a defender on him, but the next pass may lead to that Jalen three in the corner or Jalen driving or Grant having a three in the corner or just somebody cutting into the lane, right? So they just have done a much better job in terms of giving Tatum easier opportunities to pass out of those double teams. Tatum deserves the most credit, obviously, but the Celtics, I feel like, and maybe I'm crazy and it's just my observation, but I do feel like there's always a closer player 
to Jason Tatum when he's getting double teamed. Okay, we mentioned the plus 54 at the three-point line over the last two games compared to the first three. The Heat actually outscored the Celtics by 39 points at the three-point line. This is another thing in terms of winning on the margins. The Heat cannot (laughs) beat the Celtics if this is what the margin is going to continue to be in terms of the three-point shooting. They need sort of David strategies. Even though they're the team with the commanding 3-0 series lead, they need sort of David things to go right for them, underdog things. And if they're getting outscored like this, this brutally from the three-point line, the Heat have no chance, right? Now, circling back to the Brogdon thing, I mentioned the fact that White and Smart have been really good. It's interesting to me. So he's 0 of 2 from the field, and we get the Celtics tweeting out. And by the way, TNT was completely late on this. TNT took about like a half an hour before they announced that Brogdon was out. But anyway, it was on Twitter. I'm sure most of you follow the game on social media as well when you're watching like I do. But they ruled him out. He's Jared Weiss had the reporting last night that basically he has a strain from the elbow down to the wrist, as we alluded to a little bit earlier. And he didn't look right on those shots, right? It was another bad miss. And so Jared Weiss pointed out in his article that he injured it in the first quarter of game one when he was boxing out Kevin Love. So if you go back to that, the first quarter of game one, he was two of three from three-point territory. After that, he was one of 11. And now after tonight's game, one of 13. So He was 30 of 69, 43.5% from deep in the first 13 games of the playoffs. And now he's won for his last 13. Okay. So Brogdon, and by the way, I mentioned the bad misses in the game five. He had really bad misses in game four where he looked unplayable. And here's the thing with Brogdon on the court, because, and I don't want this to sound like a massive indictment on Brogdon, but he's not a very versatile player. He's a scorer, right? Brogdon needs to hit his threes, right? Brogdon, when you think of him, it's hard, drives to the basket, and it's threes. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's his game. He's a role player. But Malcolm Brogdon, we would all agree, he is not a great defensive player. He does not navigate screens well. He doesn't get around them well. He struggles with smaller, quicker guards, and he's not a really good matchup on Jimmy Butler. So if he can't shoot, you just can't play him because it's not like he's going to bring other things to the table. And that was bearing out in the numbers. If you look at it in terms of those first or throughout this series, the first four games, When Brogdon was on the court, the Celtics had just a 108.5 offensive rating. Only the Hornets were south of 109 this season. So you're basically playing like the 29th ranked offense with Brogdon on the court in the series. And if you look at it with Brogdon off the court in the series, the Celtics had a 116.8 offensive rating, which would have been the same as the Denver Nuggets this season, which is around fifth in the NBA, right? I mean, the Nuggets are in the NBA finals. And I know it's not an apples to apples things, but the numbers tell you that the offense was just completely ineffective. And prior to the series, because of his three-point shooting and because of those numbers we illustrated, he was shooting the ball like he did during the regular season. The offensive rating with Brogdon on the court, 119.9. The Kings led the NBA at 118.6. So basically what has happened because Brogdon can't shoot is you've gone from playing with Brogdon on the court like the best offense in the NBA, or should say better than the best offense in the NBA, to basically the 29th ranked offense in the NBA. So It's going to be an interesting decision going forward where those minutes go, because based on the fact that he didn't come back to this game, I don't believe he's going to play. My guess is, this is just my guess, that he doesn't play in game six. And even if he does play in game six, he's not going to be very effective. Now, we saw what Joe Mazzulla's plan was. It feels like, and I actually had a poll question up, you can still answer it, by the way, what they should do if Brogdon's ineffective again. And I had play Pritchard as one option, play Hauser as one option. 
play Pritchard and Hauser as another option or just cut the rotation to seven. It felt like Joe's decision in this game was just to cut the rotation to seven. Now, he tried out Pritchard briefly in this game. And Pritchard comes in, he dribbles the ball off his foot. It's a turnover the other way. And on defense, right away, Jimmy Butler went after Pritchard. Now, what I think is going to happen going forward, they may try to steal minutes, but they're just going to play with a seven-man rotation like they did at the end of the Philadelphia 76ers series, except in this series, Grant Williams will be playing, Malcolm Brogdon won't. But if it was me, and if I did want to play somebody else, the guy that I would put in is Hauser, rather than Peyton Pritchard. Because if you look at it, you can take advantage of Pritchard more easily, especially Jimmy Butler, than Sam Hauser. Sam Hauser is six foot eight. He's not a small guy. Pritchard is six one. So even though Hauser is not a great defensive player, I feel like what's happened this season, and we actually talked to Sean Grandy about this way back at the beginning of the season, it feels like teams get obsessed with going after Hauser, and it sort of makes their offense ineffective because they become so obsessed with it. So I actually, first of all, I think Hauser will hold up better than Pritchard when it comes to that. And if you look at the numbers this season, the defensive rating with those guys on the court is pretty much the same. But if you look at the offensive rating, just a 107.9 with Pritchard on the floor. So it's not like he boosted the offense this year. With Hauser, it's a much much more respectable 114.1. Hauser's just a better shooter. I mean, you look at the numbers on the season, Hauser was well over 40% and Pritchard was well below 40% from three-point territory this season. Hauser, like, he's a legitimate bona fide catch-and-shoot guy. So if it's me going forward and, I have, and I'm going to go to an eight-man rotation, I would have given Hauser more minutes tonight in that third quarter. I would have given him an opportunity when you had the lead. See if he catches fire a little bit because that may be a real weapon going forward in this series because you're missing an elite shooter in Brogdon. And Derek White may just be the answer. Just play Derek White like 45 minutes if it's a close game. But I didn't like the decision to go to Pritchard over Hauser. We saw Pritchard earlier on in the series. You figure the same thing will happen in this game. I, Joe Mazzulla had a great game. He had a really good game four as well. I'm not criticizing him too much. I'm just saying like if it's my decision, I'd rather go with Hauser over Pritchard. One other Joe Mazzulla decision. I find this interesting. Okay. What did we call for after game four? This is the, my one big critique after game four, if you guys remember. When Tatum's off the court, okay, when Jason Tatum is not playing, you need to have Horford and Smart on the court because every time Tatum leaves the court, the heat go to his own. So you need your two other best passers on the court. What did Joe do to begin the second quarter when he gave Tatum his rest tonight? Al and Marcus, baby. I think Joe Mazzulla is listening to Off the Pike. That's my, no, I'm kidding. I, I am exaggerating. But somebody obviously told him, get the best passers on the court when Tatum's not out there. So I love that. And guess what happened? With those two guys on the court, the Heat went to the zone. The Celtics, with Tatum out of that game to begin the second quarter, the Celtics won those minutes 12 to 11. I'm telling you, you need to put the best passers out there. He clearly did this in the game tonight. Okay, one other thing. We need to do our nightly check. On Reggie Miller, who had another atrocious game. So two things to point out about this one. First of all, early in the game, Caleb Martin, it looked like he hyperextended his knee. He did hyperextend his knee, but I thought, oh man, this may be a bad injury. That looked bad. He was fine. And then Stan Van Gundy says what the Heat need to do is make sure they have Cody Martin, Caleb Martin's brother, in the locker room next game. So if he gets hurt, he can just come out and nobody's going to know the difference. Reggie takes it seriously and he says, yeah, but Caleb's the score. Cody's not a scorer, so everyone will know the difference. It's like, Reggie, he's not fucking serious, dude. Okay, you don't have to take this literally. 
Okay, he's making a joke. Just laugh for something along those lines or make a joke about, hey, did this ever happen to the Morris twins? Because Stan Van Gundy coached one of the Morris twins. You don't have to take all this stuff literally. Oh, and then the other big thing that Reggie said tonight that it was just, I could not believe this. So the Celtics, this is another thing they took advantage of was they got a bunch of offensive rebounds. But Rob Williams taps an offensive rebound to Derek White. Derek White then throws a lob to Rob and Rob dunks it down. Reggie then says, that was not a shot from Derek White. That was a pass. No fucking shit, man. It wasn't anywhere near the rim. It was clearly a lob. And Reggie's explaining to everybody, that wasn't a miss. Listen, guys, that was a pass. No kidding, Reggie. Thank you very much. So this guy has been asleep at the wheel. But you know what I'm learning? When the Celtics are winning, like they won in game four and they won in game five, and especially in game five, when there was no doubt it was comfortable, I was never nervous in this game. I don't know about you. I know sometimes we can be neurotic as fans. I was never worried about this game. But it is much better having this experience with Reggie Miller when you're up big. Like you can have fun. I was going back and forth with people on social media. It's fun when the Celtics are up big. When the Celtics are losing, I just want to punch the TV, okay? So that's the good thing. When the Celtics are up big, I think the Reggie stuff is funny. When the Celtics are losing, I get really mad about the Reggie stuff. All right, a lot more coming up. As I said, my buddy Will Fleming from the Red Sox broadcast team, play-by-play man for the Sox, will join us a little bit. We'll get into everything going on with the Red Sox right now. Coming up next, though, let's get to a couple of your emails. Welcome back into Off the Pike. And just to note, remember, guys, we'll be recording on Saturday after the Celtics and Heat Game 6, which would be fun. So if you want to leave us a voicemail, you can at 617-396-7172. That is 617-396-7172. You can also email us at offthepike at gmail.com. And we'll get to a couple of your emails tonight. We'll get to our mailbag as we bring in our producer, who's got his Celtics jacket on right now, it is Jamie McClellan. Nice little C's jacket, the old school. I love it. Jamie, what's going on, man? How you feeling? Win for the C's, baby. I think the jacket's good luck. I'm feeling great. This is more like it. Can't take you gotta wear it for game six, Saturday night, man. You I'm playing game six Celtics jacket. Game seven, I might have to pull out some of the old four Red Sox jerseys for good luck. What do you think of that? Okay, but, well, put that underneath, though, because if they okay. win, you got to keep the jacket going, bro. Both. I mean, come on. Combination. Gotta have some loyalty. Can't be beat with a combo. Now that you say that, I just thought about this. The Celtics wore the green again at home tonight. They wore the green on the road, too. So I would assume they wore the green on Saturday because it's not like the Heat have green in their uniforms. So they could clearly wear the green again. I can't imagine they wouldn't. Those are my favorite Celtics uniforms, by the way, too. They're not classy. to go on a uniform rant, but some, like some of the ones they've pulled out over the past two years, I hated i hated some of those ones i'm fine with like the bill russell ones those are okay different shade of green i don't hate the black ones but remember when they went to the gray a couple of years ago those were heinous they had those other like remember those white ones they had last year like the uh, the different type of white uniforms the banner ones yeah and the celtics have a classic white jersey like the the celtics have look we're biased but the celtics just playing white and playing green those are like my two of my favorite uniforms in sports so just stick with the basics and stick with the green for game six all right jamie let's get to the mailbag man all right here we go this is from richard in new jersey richard writes hi brian great show enjoyed your comparison of joe maz's experience to other current nba coaches in the playoffs the one relevant comparison you missed was joe maz versus when brad started with the celtics Despite two NCAA finals appearances at Butler, Brad had no experience. Danny Ainge ensured Brad had a network of talented assistants to help out. 
For good or for bad, I think Brad keeps Joe after the season because in Joe's first year, Brad did not provide the same advantages afforded by Danny to Brad. What do you think of that? Okay, a couple of things to that. So I get Brad didn't have the NBA experience, but he had collegiate experience and he had taken a team to two Final Fours. So Brad had more head coaching experience at a high level than Joe Mazzulla did, right? Joe Mazzulla was a D2 head coach. That's it. Brad Stevens coached at Butler and brought Butler to two Final Fours. So Brad was clearly a more established head coach. And that was a really interesting hire by Danny at the time because it kind of came out of left field and everybody applauded. And Brad was a really good coach, even at the end, if you thought maybe he lost the locker room fine. I've always said the one thing I disliked about Brad was I thought he was the Bernie Sanders of offense, right? You get a shot, you get a shot, you get a shot. That's not how it works in the NBA. You need to create a hierarchy. Your best players take the shot, right? So that had been my one issue as pertains to Brad. But the other part of that that's different from Brad to Joe, when Brad came in, he was coming in to a complete fucking teardown. Yeah. Remember, they traded away Pierce and Kevin Garnett to rebuild. And that is the trade that keeps on giving because you have Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, right? So it was a totally different situation then. And look, the Celtics, as I alluded to, they were in a really difficult predicament. I'm sure. The one thing you could say is, oh, maybe they should have hired Damon Stoudemire over Joe Mazzulla if that's the thing. And I'm sure that Damon Stoudemire was not happy about that. And now he's at Georgia Tech. That's clearly hurt them in terms of this postseason run. But I do agree now that it's gone to six at least. Like if they got swept, I think he may have had to move on from Joe Mazzulla. But I think he's keeping his job at this point, right? Because these other coaches, like, if you were going to move on from Joe, because I really did feel like a Jamie after game three, like, hey, if you get swept, you may have to make a change. But now they win two games. He made some adjustments. And I feel like it's going to be really difficult now. You're going to have it would be a fourth coach in four years. And some of these established like the only way the only guy you could replace him with is a guy with experience. Right. It can't just be an assistant off another staff. Right. You can't just say, hey, who's the main assistant on the Suns or the main assistant on the Kings, like the young head coaching candidates out there, you would have to go after an established guy. And the other thing is this, Brad brought Joe to the Celtics. Remember, Joe was on Brad's staff. He was the only carryover from Emes. I mean, he was the only guy on Emes staff that was a carryover from Brad's staff. So I believe Brad is invested mm -hmm. in Joe Mazzulla's success, just like Danny was invested in Brad. So no, I don't think there's a change coming anymore after you win these two games, but I don't think we can just ignore the fact that if the Celtics, that's the reason we brought it up. If the Celtics got swept, this was going to be a legitimate conversation. It, like something was going to have to happen and the easiest change would have been the coach. But now, even though this doesn't like the past two games, Joe Mazzola has been really good in the past two games. I've had very little criticism over the past two games, as I alluded to in my open, but he has had his issues throughout the postseason, and I would expect he's going to be better next year for going through this stuff. But to his original question, no, I don't see a change coming at this point. Yeah, I agree. I think, like you said, he's he has improved. Like even within the series, it makes you wonder why he couldn't have maybe taken something, some of this into account during the regular season. But whatever, better well, late than yeah, never, and I guess. Jamie, even even think about this. How good has Grant been? Yeah. <laughs> like, how did you not play him in Crazy. game one? Totally, <laughs> it's unreal. It's and even now, like, hey, let's see if we can get a couple minutes out of Pritchard in this game five. He barely plays, right? So that tells you, like, he doesn't think Pritchard's playable. He, he's like, oh, let me try it. And then he pulled him right out of the game. So still, that game one decision is incredibly perplexing to me. All right, who's up next, Jamie? Well, this this points at probably Joe's biggest perplexing decisions over the season. But this is from Tyler. 
Title rights, got to give credit where credit is due. Maz has been very quick to tamp down runs with timeouts tonight. Like I said, Celtics at seven. But it's true. He's been called more timeouts. And how about in game four? He called one in the middle of a possession <laughs> where the possession wasn't going anywhere. And he bailed them out. So, yes, he's been much better. I would totally agree with that. He's been much better as it pertains to the timeout usage. He had one in game four, too when Miami was going on a little bit of a run. So yes, he's been much better with the timeouts. It's a, it's amazing what happens. So what <laughs> my guess is, is that somebody told Joe, hey, Joe, listen, there's this rule. It's called the timeout. When you take it, the game stops and you actually can talk to the team during it. So, and it is interesting. Like a lot of the Celtics players are like running these huddles, <laughs> Al and Smart, but I don't even really criticize Joe for that. I think that's a good thing to give off some of the because these are real like Al's older than him. Right. Not to yeah. say that that means Al should be the coach, but these are Al's an incredibly smart player, smart, even though he makes some dumb plays. He's incredibly intelligent on the court. Right. So in terms of he knows the game, like that play that he made, I referenced earlier on Duncan Robinson, that was tremendous. He knew they were going to the dribble handoff. Mm -hmm. Like this, these are plays that Rondo used to make in back in the day where Rondo knew what the other team was running. And I know smart drives us crazy all the time, but it's okay for those players to point stuff out. I don't, I don't have an issue with that whatsoever. I know people were like critical of it. I don't have a problem with it. I hear you. Um, it's funny though, about uh, calling a timeout in the middle of possession. He did say he was going to learn from it. What was it? Game three or game four against the Sixers, the end of the game yeah. when he said they didn't get into their setting. Right. It's like, but again, it's like, how, how does it take a brutal loss in the playoffs for him to get that message? But again, he, he is learning at the very end of this game, at least. Hey, man, if he if he wins this series, better late than never. we're going to feel a lot better about Joe Maz. Um, speaking of how this series. But also, uh, Jamie, sorry, not, not to okay. cut you off real quick, though. Think about if they just won one of the first two games. Oh, believe me. It's all I was we feel like, dude. Oh, my God. We would just feel like that the series is over. Like the Heat have no if the Celtics had won these last two games after just winning one of their home games, even let's say they got the shit beat out of them like they did in game three. If they just won one of those home games, especially after the way that they crushed the Heat in the first half of game one, and then they were great in the third quarter of game two, if they had just pulled off one of those victories right now, what we would be saying is the Celtics are going to win this easily in six. Like Miami's got no chance, but it's just, and that goes back too to some of the mistakes the coach made and some of the mistakes the players, players. made. Obviously, they're more, yeah, they're more, and Jalen, like Jalen not showing up yeah. for the first couple of games of this series. I Actually, I didn't even think he was great in this game tonight. I don't know if you differed on that. I thought he took... The beginning of that third, I mentioned some of those shots. Like he, he goes in early shot clock and just takes a lefty hook. I mean, what are you doing? And then he's got this crazy Euro step he takes. I just think sometimes it feels yeah. like he was trying to get himself back on track when it's just like, if you just let the game come to you, it's going to work out better for you. I thought he at least looked a little more confident stepping into some of those three pointers the way we've been seeing all season. So, and again, yeah. it's like, I, I want him to get into it. So it's like, I get the urge to try to force it because it's like, do you really think they're going to beat the Nuggets if he's not getting into it? Like he needs to get going. No, it's a good point. And maybe he's dealing with something too, like Brogdon yeah. is because we've seen like the hand stuff, the wrist stuff going on with him through throughout the season. So maybe he's dealing with something too, but at least he's playable. Brogdon's not playable. Yeah, it sucks for him. He had such a great season. Now he's actually has a legitimate chance to win a championship and he's dealing with this tendon thing. And Clearly, it is an injury. I mean, yeah. there's no way around it. The guy, he looks horrible shooting the basketball. So yeah. he's done. He's done. I would not expect him to play in game six. No, I think he played And I wouldn't minutes, play him. Like, zero points. I, you can't, unfortunately, you can't trust him right now. If he can't shoot, he's kind of useless. Totally. I agree. Um, this last question is from uh, Michael Breen. 
I don't know if there's any relation. We might have a big fan in our building. Um, oh, Mike Breen. Uh, Mike Breen said, I think it's him. I think he's getting ready for the finals. <laughs> uh, he writes, Hey, Brian, love the show. I truly believe there will be a game seven at home. I know heat culture is a thing, but I believe it can be used against them. It wasn't long ago that Spo and Butler almost came to blows on the sideline because Butler didn't get back on D after turning the ball over. Uh, then there's the nickel black story, and the math is going to swing our, our way eventually. And the undrafted players, as they're now known on the Heat, uh, they're knocking down shots now, but how are they going to hold up in Game 6 or Game 7 of the Conference Finals? Is Caleb Martin really the guy? If they start breaking shots and things go sideways, do the Heat implode? I think it's a distinct possibility. I also saw the same thing with Jimmy Butler looking tired with his hands on his knees in Game 3, but I was thinking it was Jimmy being Jimmy, and he was trying to do the whole Jimmy Butler story. But watching these past two games, he definitely looks like he doesn't have the legs. What do you think of that? He does look tired. He does. Mm-hmm. He looks he look he has looked tired over the past couple of games. And the one thing I will say too, in terms of the undrafted players, I'm just sick of that. These guys are NBA players now. Like, can we we you mentioned it through the first couple of games? <laughs> and anytime I watch the Heat throughout this postseason run, they mention it with Martin and they mention it with Vincent. I've had enough of that. But Jimmy does look tired. And if you look at it in this game tonight, you know how many shots he took? Ten. He took ten shots, and it's mm-hmm. not like, oh, like the other game where it's like yeah, he must have had a ton of free throws. No, he didn't get to the free throw line that much in this game. Like the right. last game, he took what, 12 free throws. And if you look at it in this game, he took just six free throws. If Jimmy doesn't get to the free throw line, he he doesn't have big scoring nights. And the Celtics have done a much better job. Something that we've been calling for, Jamie, throughout the postseason is, hey, or throughout the series, I should say, when he jump stops, don't go for the first shot. He is never shooting the first shot. He is a two-foot jumper. He lands and he pump fakes. The Celtics did a much better job not falling for that. Make him hit mid-rangers and I, or pull-up jumpers. I saw tonight a couple of times they went underneath the screen on a three and they said, Jimmy, try to hit that. And he doesn't even take them. He doesn't want to take threes. It's, it's not like in his arsenal. He's yeah. not a good three-point shooter. He shot it like crazy against Milwaukee, didn't shoot it well against the Knicks, and he's not shooting it well against the Celtics. He doesn't want to take him. So keep doing that. The other thing in terms of he's completely right about the math. That is way back in the Celtics' favor. We mentioned it earlier, plus 54 for the Celtics from three over the past two games compared to plus 39 for the Heat in the first three games of the series. So that is way back in the Celtics' advantage. And the other big thing, we referenced the Brogdon injury. The health advantage is in the Celtics' favor. Gabe, and I know this would have sounded crazy if we mentioned this in like January or February. Gabe Vincent is significantly more important to the Celtics Mm -hmm. or to the Heat than Malcolm Brogdon is to the Celtics for a couple of reasons. The first one is Gabe Vincent is like one of the only three guys on that team right now that can create offense, right? And even Bam, he's a big man. So he is essentially their default starting point guard. And Lowry is washed okay he is fat and washed and as i say that he's gonna have like this epic game six or something right like remember remember the second quarter he had i think that was game one where he had like 11 points he's gonna go nuts just to screw with me but anyway my point being is you don't have hero so that's part of your offense and he didn't look right hero it doesn't even look like he can do much with the right hand they say hey maybe game seven but if gabe vincent isn't the gabe vincent that we've seen from the majority of the series they just don't have enough scoring. And what we've seen on the other th- other side of things, Brogdon, when he was on the court, was a complete negative tonight. He can't shoot. He doesn't do anything besides score. And I, I keep saying, like, I'm not criticizing Brogdon. I'm just telling you, there's limitations to his game, right? Yes, we've sir. seen it all season long. So, but the Celtics can make up for that. They have Derek White, who is second team all NBA defensively. 
and he's shooting the fucking shit out of the ball. Marcus Smart is playing really well right now. So you can just cut the rotation down to seven with Grant Williams. And if you really want, like I'm advocating for, throw Hauser in there. So Brogdon being out, yeah, you'd love to have him when he's healthy. But if he's not healthy, the Celtics are going to be all right. Gabe Vincent and the Heat, they're not going to be all right without that guy on the court because there's just so much on Jimmy Butler. And what we found out in game five, Kyle Lowry cannot play those type of minutes at this particular point in time. The one guy, though, is, and finally, Smart sniffed it out. Enough with the Duncan Robinson handoffs, okay? Figure that out. Don't me off. This guy cannot be driving to the basket for layups. He was out of the rotation. No more Duncan Robinson. That's the one guy that was giving him problems. Yeah. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I think you, Brian, and the emailer make good points. So I ask you, I don't want to put you in any uncomfortable position. You said the series is going to go to seven. Are the Celtics going to win game seven? Can you say it right here? I think they are. I think they are. After game four, I said they were going to seven. Now I think they're going to win the series. I think they're going to win game six. Boom. You win game six. I can't see the heat coming in game seven, even though we know the Celtics have not been great until tonight at home in the postseason. I don't see the Celtics losing a game seven. If you win three in a row, I mean, come on. You cannot lose the game seven. That would just be, that would kill me. And by the way, our buddy from the Philly special, Raheem Palmer, who's been on the show multiple times, he tweeted out tonight, now that his team's not in it, he wants the Celtics to tie the series up at three and then lose on a Jimmy Butler Horrible thing buzzer beater. I'm like, come on, man. Terrible I thought we were friends. Yeah, I thought we were friends, Raheem. Come on. And why would he want Jimmy Butler? Jimmy Butler should be on the Sixers if it wasn't for the Sixers That's being true. idiots. I'm going to have to text Raheem about that one, Jamie. Not cool. Not cool at all, man. All right, that is Jamie McClellan. By the way, make sure if you want to email us after game six or during game six, it's off the pike at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voicemail at 617-396-7172. All right, coming up next, the Red Sox cannot hit right now. Chris Sale is going to be back on the mound on Friday night. We'll get into all that with Will Fleming from the Red Sox broadcast crew. The play-by-play man for the Sox will join us next. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, the play-by-play voice of the Boston Red Sox. It is Will Fleming. I should also say Alec Manoa's biggest fan. Will, how are you, man? (laughs) Metric man, what is going on? It has been way too long. Love hearing your voice. Love seeing all your success. Um, You know, Alec Manoa and I, we're we're buddies now. We've we've made peace. And uh, all the teams in big league baseball are starting to catch up with my feeling of that, which is... It's a tired act, but uh, great to be with you, man. I agree, man. And some background on that story. Last year, there was a game where the Red Sox were playing the Blue Jays, and Manoa struck out Franchi Cordero and Bobby Dahlbeck, which at the time, Dahlbeck was striking out like 50% of the time and Franchi like 40% of the time. So this wasn't a big achievement. And he starts talking shit to these guys. And I'm thinking to myself, you want to do that to Rafi? Like, at the time, you want to do that to Xander? Okay, like, that's fine. You're a hard ass if you do that, right? You're talking smack to the best players on the team. But that, that to me, was just ridiculous. And I remember you were calling the game, and you just went absolutely nuts. And it is Listen, a tired act. I mean, And he's on. struggling. Yeah, I'm, and I'm happy about that, by the way. I, I, I just think things like that catch up to you. There's a fine line between getting yourself amped up and being ready to go and, you know, talking shit i'm glad we can curse on this podcast you just you can't talk shit to guys who strike out all the time i just think he's got to find a way he's a great talented pitcher there's got to be a better way to do it how are you metric man 
I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So I want to prepare the audience. Next time the Red Sox play the Blue Jays, make sure you tune in to Will on the broadcast because I'm sure there'll be something going on with him and Alec Manoa, who is struggling now that the pitch clock is in effect. He's not in the best cardio shape, and you can tell that's kind of <laughs> catching up with him. That's that's my theory on that, Will. But hey, so let's get to the Sox because they were rolling along here in this latest stretch. They've gone four and eight since splitting with Atlanta. The Angels series, they... Really couldn't hit. Really, it goes back until Sunday. But if you look at this recent 12-game stretch, 241 they're hitting, which is 19, 307 on base, which is 20th. The OPS is 22nd. And prior to that, they were one of the best lineups in baseball. And the thing that sticks out to me, Will, about this stretch right now is I can't remember a time where everybody in the lineup except one player was struggling, right? The only guy hitting right now during this 12-game stretch is Yoshida. So what do you think's happened? Because it's not just... Hey, Rafi's cold, or Verdugo's cold, or Duran's cold. It's sort of like everybody right now is in a funk, with the exception of Yoshida, who I don't think he gets. I don't think he's going to get out again the rest of the season the way he's rolling. Uh, you know, that's a hard question to answer. I, I, part of it is that's just baseball, right? Teams go in waves. Where the offense was on an incredible roll for a long time, and I do think that this offense is better than I thought it would be in the offseason. A lot of that goes to the mentality that they have, which is grind at bats. You saw that even last night with Anderson. I was stunned they didn't get more runs against him. But he had 76 pitches, I think, through like four innings. Uh, it's kind of a next man up mentality where everybody thinks, I, I just got to do my job, have a quality at bat, and the next guy will pick me up. And over the last four or five days, that just hasn't happened, where they've been quick at bats, not a lot of productivity out of the out of the lineup. So uh, I think it's been a lot of off speed the last four or five days. The, the the league is catching up a little bit. This Red Sox offense is a fastball feasting team. I mean, they kill fastballs, and they've been a great great offense. Uh, I I think they'll adjust. Just you know, it's a four or five day stretch. Uh, it's amazing. You talk about leaving Atlanta. Uh, I felt the same way after Game Two in San Diego, where you think, my goodness. This is a Red Sox team that could do some major damage. It can be a huge mm -hmm. factor uh, in the playoffs and, and can make a real run. And I still believe that, by the way. Uh, I think we shouldn't overreact to six days of an offense that has gone a little bit quiet because I think the approach is right. I think the, the pieces they have in place are great. And I think the, the reinforcements that are coming are going to only increase that. So I think this is a Red Sox team that right now, is about where I thought they would be. But having said that, I think the, the, the foundational pieces are there for them to be even better than I thought they would be. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm not overly concerned about this offense because they have been mashing all season long and it's just a stretch where they're in a little bit of a funk and they're going to get Duvall back and they're going to get Story back, which actually helps their defense too, where we know now that he's healthy, like I'm glad the elbow thing is no longer going to be an issue anymore because he actually had the surgery. It was like a ticking time bomb with that. So I'm happy that at some point, because then they're already mashing lefties, but you bring Duvall and Story oh, back. I mean... Like the versatility, well, that's one thing that sticks out to me with this lineup compares to years past. And I said the other day, like this whole idea of high and bloom, like the Rays mentality. Well, one of the great things about the Rays is they had matchup lineups. And you look at this Red Sox team, Ref Snyder against lefties, right? Tapia can hit righties. Yes. All these guys in the lineup, like the versatility, I love it. But one guy I wanted to get to is Duran because Duran came up and he was so good early on and then... 
He's hit a little bit of a funk here. Not a hit in his last 19 plate appearances over the last five games. A lot of hit and miss stuff, a lot of strikeouts and whatnot. But this is what I'm interested in with Duran, right? Because nobody was going to hit the way he was the remainder of the season where he's hitting 356 in his first 114 plate appearances. But what we saw last year when he came up, he had some good moments. And then when he went cold, he continued to go cold. Obviously, he's made a lot of adjustments this year. The presence in the field is just much better last year. I mean, remember last year when he was playing center field, it looked like trying to go after the ball, a cat with no whiskers. He had no idea where the (laughs) ball was going. This year, greatly improved when it comes to that. And the mentality seems better. He opened up about some of the issues he had. So I have faith that he's going to bounce back. But this is kind of interesting, right, to see him go through this first kind of tough patch this season to see how he responds. It's a real test for him, for sure. I mean, I, I also think, remember, he was just back in the ballpark that he went to his first game as a kid, right? Like that's so much pressure when you got 50 people in the stands. We were in the outfield last night, Will Middlebrooks and I were, where after the game, he is hugging people for 30 minutes after the game. I mean, and and that's fun, but it's also a ton to handle. You got a lot going on as a big league ball player and it, it's enough to hit. It's enough to hit in front of everybody you've ever known in your entire life. So I give him a pass on this three game Angels series, but you're right that this is going to be a really interesting test for him to pass where, you know, it's one thing when you're just feeling it, you're red hot. Every adjustment you've ever made is great. The world is loving you. Now he's got to dig a little deep where the at-bats have been a little quicker. There's been a lot more swing and miss. He needs to get on base, period. And whether that means occasionally dropping down a bunt and figuring it out, maybe that's an answer for him. The thing that that really seems to me to be so sustainable for him, Brian, is the contact is so much better. The hands are in a better position, and even the outs are loud. I mean, everything is sort of back through the middle and the other way, which for him is his happy place. And, I, you know, the thing I love about him the most is I, you're like sitting on the edge of your seat because if he hits a ball in play and it touches outfield grass, he's thinking about second base. And, and he gets there more than – anyone I've ever watched play. So, yeah, I, I, I think this Arizona series, and then when we get back to Fenway, will be an interesting test for him because adversity is a big part of this game. And and you're right that dealing with that and learning how to cope and figure that out at the major league level is a huge part of becoming a like totally sustainable big league player. But I can just tell you being around him, he's a different guy. You know, I mean, he, his mentality is totally different. He's so much more comfortable. He, he really is a key part of everything that's going on. He's in the clubhouse. He's doing crossword puzzles. He is so at peace with himself. Whereas last year, I think he was just kind of in awe of the big league program. Uh, and, and he didn't want to talk to guys, really. And, and all the stuff that he's talked about, I love that he's open about it. It's it's important to to figure out where you are in the major league universe. But I I just think he's in a better place mentally. So I don't have any worries that he's not going to bounce back. I think he's really, he's, he's established himself and he's ready to uh, settle in at the big league level. Yeah. And when he came up, he legitimately changed the lineup. We had all these concerns about the Duvall injury. He changed the lineup. He brings that presence when he gets on base too. And you reference when he gets the ball into the outfield. Mm. I forget what game it was, but he hit a ball to left field. It landed in front of the outfielder, and he doubled. 
You don't see that's like no. almost impossible to do. I mean, the speed is he's an angry runner, too. Like, you notice that it's not like it doesn't look <laughs> yes. like it's they're not like easy steps. Right. He looks like a running back, like he's bouncing off the ground. There's he's no he is. And his angles are so different than everybody else. There's a little trout in him, too, where like he's busting his ass down the first baseline and he takes one step outside the bag and then he's on a straight line to second. I mean, I think that's the fun part about seeing teams for the first time is like the left fielder doesn't realize what Jaron Duran, if the ball is four steps to his left, Duran is going to be at second base. And, and yeah, apparently like <laughs> eventually that, that gets out. The book on him will be there, but he's such a fun player to watch him. And, and uh, he changes the entire dynamic of this team. Uh, and, and, you know, and it allows Duvall maybe to play a little left field and let Yoshida DH occasionally. And maybe you have some other permutations with, with all the guys that are coming back, but, his ability, by the way, the fact that he now is a really good defensive player, you can look at anything you want, whether it's outs above average, range factors, all this stuff. I'm just telling you, I watch every game, every single minute of every game. And last year, he sort of looked like he was on roller skates in center field. Now, he looks like he's played center field his entire life. Every jump, every route, he looks natural out there. And to me, more than anything, the defense is is so impressive because he's always had the natural ability to hit and run. He looks like a center fielder now, and that's a huge thing for the Red Sox. Yeah, and it was always surprising, too, because he's clearly in, like, the top one percentile of athletes in Major yes. League Baseball. So it, you knew it eventually once he You're started reading the ball. You're envious of his biceps, aren't you? Like, you, you look at yeah, him I, and you think, I mean, man dude, alive. I could do preacher curls for the next eight years. I would not look like that. The guy is, I mean, he is ripped up. And you see his father, too, like at the games. His dad's jacked up, too. So I think he'll turn it around rather quickly here. So with Rafi, this is interesting, Will, to put the metric man hat on here. This one, this is a weird, yeah, this is a weird season, man, because he gets the big $330 million contract. And the contact's great. The hard hit rate is the career best. Balls off the bat 95 plus 52%. The barrel percentage, best of his career, 13, or I should say second best, 13.8%. The launch angles, career best as well. That has been an issue with him where he gets ground ball heavy. But he is walking now 4.8% of the time, 148th out of 165 qualified hitters, career worst, and during the stretch where the Sox were, have been 4-8, and eight, he hasn't walked once in 48 plate appearances. The on-base percentage, this is Rafael Devers, is 290, 144th out of 165 qualified hitters. He's never been worse than he has against off-speed pitches this year. He's hitting 146, which he always has matched off-speed pitches. Yep. The thing that Rafi once struggled with going back to two years ago, remember the Astros threw him like 200 straight fastballs because he couldn't handle the fastball up in the zone. That's no longer an issue. But what do you see from Rafi? Is it just a little bit of impatience? Because he's always swung at a lot of pitches out of the zone, no matter what you look at. That's always been a thing with him. But the fact that he's not walking at all, I remember I talked to Cora on the podcast last year. He said one of the big things he noticed with Rafi is when he was walking more, he was more productive. So do you think it's just maybe it is just he's a little over anxious? What do you think is going on with him? Because this is bizarre to see a hitter of his magnitude with an on-base percentage self of 300. He is a unicorn, Rafi is. And he's unlike any hitter that I've ever where definitely when he walks more, he's better. Because part of that is, you know, he is the best bad ball hitter of his era where he can do things with pitches that are off the plate that no one else can do. I mean, Lou Merloni on the broadcast five days ago said to me, look, he just swung at a pitch up at his neck and he fouled it off and he's pissed. But guess what? The next time he gets that, he hits it 450. 
And that's true. We've seen that from him so many times. But it is a balancing act for him. And I think it's almost like when he's calm and taking pitches, then you know pitchers are in trouble. And I would say that you're, you just cited the loud contact and the hard hit rate and all that stuff. I'm not worried about Rappi in any way. But he's just such a different hitter in a way that I don't know that a regular conversation applies to him. Where you just kind of say, yeah, there's no logic to any of this. He's going to get stupid hot for a month. And then he's going to go through times like this where he's not walking at all. He's chasing a lot of pitches and he's hitting into a lot of loud outs. Now, the problem with that is, of course, when you have an offense struggling like the Red Sox, you would like your best player to be able to just elevate you and lift you. And so I think we have some unrealistic expectations about Rafi and what he needs to be for this offense. But I, let me just say, if, if you want me to put money on the table right now as to whether Rafi is going to turn it around and going to get hot again. Uh, I'm in. I'll, I'll put all the chips in the middle of the table on that. But, it, you know, he is their $300 million guy, and he's different than most of the $300 million guys, where it's not the most consistent at bat you're going to get. Like, you want him up in the big spot, but it's not like he's not going to be as steady as these other superstar players. So he's going through it right now. But uh, And he, he's more frustrated lately than he's been in the past, where he's just killing balls at people to get caught. He's looking to the heavens more. I Listen, I, I'm in on Rafi. Uh, I, I think that uh, he's going to get hot very soon. Like for the last five days, I've turned to Lou and said, God, he's going to homer tonight, isn't he? And and he just misses and whatever, and he's ticked off about that. But I think it's coming. I think he, he got a week or 10 days coming very soon where he does Rafi things. And Look, he's hitting whatever he is, 245 with the OPS below 900, which is not him. But he also has driven in, what, 45 runs, and he's hit 13 home yeah. runs. So it's that's how great a player he is, that you're disappointed with the production of a guy who's hit the most home runs in the American League and driven in the third most runs in the, in the whole game. So uh, if, if you're lit, ranking my concerns, Rafi is very low on the list. I'd agree with you when it comes to that. And the isolated power has never been better. Everything is an extra base. One of these days you're going to explain that to me, what isolated power is. <laughs> All you got to do is take the slugging percentage and minus the batting average. I'm That's kidding. it. It's very easy. That's a, it, it's, it's a great metric, too, Will. I'll get you on that one. So Corey Kluber to the bullpen, his home runs per nine were 100th out of 102 starters that had thrown at least 40 innings. We know that he doesn't really have electric stuff at this point in his career. And I do feel like it was urgency from the Red Sox to take him out of the rotation because we heard after his last start, Alex Cora said after the game that he was going to make another start. And now he's in the bullpen. I don't know what he can bring you in terms of a bullpen, except if it's like 9-2, maybe he can eat up some innings. Unfortunately, the Kluber thing, what I thought was going to happen with him is, all right, this is a guy that can at least give you a lot of innings this year. And maybe he gives you five innings. He gives up three to four runs. You're in the game because your offense is so good and your offense is so dynamic. Unfortunately, that hasn't happened, which kind of stinks for the Red Sox. But I do think it's it's difficult to second guess them on. First of all, the Waka situation, he has a bizarre contract with San Diego, right? Where it's like there's a player option, there's a team option. And then the other component is the Nate thing, where Nate is second in Major League Baseball among starters in war. But remember, the, the Nate contract thing was weird. The Red Sox offered him three. And he ends up getting two with Texas. Apparently, he was looking for four. And the Red Sox offered him the same money, it appears, that the 
Rangers did in terms of an annual average basis. So I have a difficult time criticizing them for Nate not being here. And it's just unfortunate that after Kluber was good last year for Tampa, right? I'm not saying you would want him to start a playoff game, but it's just unfortunate it didn't work out. I think that it's hard to question in this year the moves that Hyam Bloom has made. I mean, he's, he's got so many hits and wins this season. And I know for a fact from personal conversations, everything you just said is true, where they were in on all those yep. guys. They made offers that were legitimate. I, I go back to June of last year when Michael Walker was pitching so well. And I talked to people at the highest levels of the Red Sox. and They said, we want this guy back. But guess what? His representatives think he's due for a long-term deal. And we're not sure that that's the right thing. I think we all overreact in the short term to a lot of these things. Let's talk in August about what Waka and what Evaldi are. And by the way, what at that point, maybe Shane Drohan or some of these other guys that the Red Sox have are. The Red Sox are fine on starting pitching. It's hard to watch guys you love do well. And Nate Evaldi is at the top of that list. I mean, I, I was emotional seeing Xander Bogarts this week in San Diego. He's my favorite all-time player ever. But you, you have to separate the emotional part of it and the short-term returns from some of these guys from what the long-term plan should be. And the Red Sox thought to themselves, we got a lot of young arms that are coming, and we can't commit ourselves to guys like Michael Waka and Nate Evaldi who are older with injury history. So I don't fault them for that. I understand fans being upset, looking at the numbers, thinking it'd be great if we had Nate Evaldi. Of course it would. I mean, who wouldn't think that? But I, I just think overall, they've done a really good job solidifying their rotation. And to your original point about Corey Kluber, this is the thing that stands out to me in the last two weeks. If you're a Red Sox fan, now you know the only objective for this year is to win. Because these are uncomfortable, hard conversations with guys like Nick Pavetta and Corey Kluber. And by the way, I think more conversations are coming on the infield about, guess what? We thought you'd be this. You're not. We're trying to win right now. We've got guys who can do the job better than you can. Yeah. And it's a good thing. Speaking of the depth situation is you can bring up a guy like Valdez and he's been really good because they're matching up against right-handed pitching. And with the Christian Arroyo situation, who's obviously been dealing with a bunch of issues in terms of injuries as he normally does. Like one of the questions I had is, can he be an everyday player? That's been answered, but I don't think it hurts the Red Sox because they are they have plenty of depth when it comes now to the middle infield, especially when they get Story back. And I'm with you on the Evaldi thing is because I, I feel like the Red Sox, if Nate wanted to be here, Nate would be here, right? This isn't a situation That's where right. they lowballed Nate or, or anything along those lines. So I didn't have an issue with that. And I would say this, Nate was really good in 2021. And then what happened in 2022? Injuries. So he may have a great first year with Texas, but let's see what he is next year as well. So now Houck's into the rotation or staying in the rotation, which I like, because the numbers the second time through the order had been horrendous. But then you look at that game. Well, he started throwing more splitters. He started the slider usage went even up. So he looks comfortable there. And now I feel like this is the big test for sale on Friday. He has been so good in the month of May. The strikeout rate is through the roof, 33.8%. And Working from a head will is the biggest thing I see is the commands back, right? So there's a ton of 01 counts. There's a ton of 0212 counts. And now it's almost like, okay, well, he looks like an ace. This is when you need your ace, right? They need him to go out there 
tomorrow night or Friday night in Arizona and just shove. And I can't wait to see that because I think he's going to embrace sort of like the losing streak right now for this Red Sox team. And I think he's going to be tremendous in this game. And even if I know we've gone nuts this year about the horizontal break on the slider. Well, if you're ahead 0-1 and you're ahead 0-2 and you're throwing your fastball like he is 95 miles an hour, it doesn't matter because you're going to get a ton of bad swings on that pitch. So I think he looks pretty close to an ace right now, Will. And I don't want to over-exaggerate over the past month and or so, but he looks really good to me. You're not alone. I, I mean, I said it going to break after the seventh inning. Your ace is delivering. And we can call him that again, by the way. We're all nervous about using that word. He is the bleeping ace of this team. Chris Sale is back all the way. I mean, things can happen, but this is the Chris Sale that the Red Sox have had for all these years, where there's just such an FU mentality on the mound. And he gets, he's, Blasting himself in the temple with a baseball when he gives up three soft hits. And he wants to be that guy for this team. So I'm with you Friday. will be really fun. I don't think it's a big test for him. I don't, I don't think that that's true because I think he's proven to us now that he's back and he's the guy. Uh, but I sure as hell love that he's the guy pitching on Friday to try to stop this losing streak. That's for sure. And, so, and, and those are all the elements you want out of a, a true top-of-the-rotation starter. Uh, and just one thing to follow up on all the things you were talking about with Evaldi and everybody. I know your boss, Bill, uh, is just so anti Haim because of ha- Xander and because of Mookie. And that's true. Listen, those are two of my all-time favorite players. I get that. And I'm with Bill that those guys should have had their numbers on the Raptors uh, at Fenway Park. Mookie was not going to stay ever. Xander is a different thing. They screwed that up, and they would admit that. They should have done it in spring training. Yeah. But we also have to give credit where credit is due where you said to yourself, the Benintendi deal stinks. Well, not so much anymore, where Josh Winkowski is now like a huge high leverage weapon out of the bullpen. And all of a sudden, as emotional as it was, Christian Vasquez goes, guess what you get? You get a a second baseman and Manuel Valdez, who's hitting home runs all over the place. And then Wheeler Abreu in AAA, it looks like a real factor. So I think you can talk in a fair way about all these transactions that are made and say, would we like to have Xander and Mookie? Yes, we would. All of us love those guys. We're Red Sox fans. We want those people to to live forever in Red Sox lore. But at the same time, this year, the moves that Haim has made are really bearing fruit. And I think that uh, it's important to acknowledge that too. Yeah, Winkowski has been a revelation because I thought, hey, when he's coming out of the bullpen, this is gonna this guy couldn't miss a bat last year, and all of a sudden the stuff is playing up a lot better out of the bullpen. So that's definitely a win when it comes to that trade because Benintendi has had a bad. Would you year. like he him for five been. years and seventy five mil, or would you rather have Josh Winkowski? No, I I rather have Winkowski. And at the time, like everybody sort of misjudged that trade because of the Franchi part, of right? Where it's like. Franchi, Franchi wasn't the only guy in that trade, right? So that became like the storyline because, and I like Fran, I liked Fran, I, I always believed in Franchi because like some of the stuff told you, he, all this loud contact, right? I got tricked into that one. But anyway, <laughs> like this guy's hitting what? Remember the home run he hit in Philly that was like oh 400? You we were there the other day. The I longest. Went out and said a prayer to where that ball landed. It was like 475 feet. Oh, yeah, it was ridiculous. And then. The other thing, too, in terms of some of the moves that he made, the only issue I had last year in terms of the Vasquez thing, I was fine with. I thought I've always thought that Christian Vasquez was an incredibly overrated player. And if you felt you really liked the prospects, go get him. I just didn't like the whole idea of you did two things at once. Right. Where it's like 
you didn't trade JD. You could have got something of value, you would think, for JD. And you also added, like you added Reese McGuire, like that. It just felt like a weird trade deadline, right? Where like the- I think they would admit that too. I think they know that they should have gone all in one direction. Yeah. And but but at that same time, you have to say, like what they're trying to do is make good baseball moves in a vacuum. And I think sometimes that maybe gets you in trouble. But they got two good players for Vasquez. Now the one problem with last year is now we're in this season where. You got a team in a loaded American league with all these teams playing well and ascending where you'd really like to maybe add at the deadline, whether it's a starter, whether it's another bat, whatever it is. And they don't have much wiggle room in terms of the luxury tax. And last year, I think in their most honest moments, they would admit that they should have gotten under. Like whether whether you lose a deal in a one-off baseball transaction, whether it's JD, whether it's Evaldi, whomever it is, you have to move one of those pieces to get under because not getting under last year when you're not going to do a whole lot hurts you this year when you really do have a chance to do something great. Yeah, that's a great point. That is, and you I mean, you paid the tax for a fifth place team. That that's that's a great point. All right. Well, hey, before we let you go, two guys, I want to see if you're concerned about. First of all, Paxton in the game on Wednesday obviously wasn't great. The first bad outing he's had out of the. Three, I, yeah. the, the one time he really didn't have his command, uh, the Drury double, like the velocity really fell on that one. The Otani one, I don't know what you do with that. That ball is like way out of the strike zone, and he murdered that out of the ballpark. So I'm not overly concerned about him, and the biggest thing that I've seen with him is he's living at 95-96 with the fastball, which it took Sale a couple of years to get back to that point, so that's major. But the Jansen thing is weird, right? I mean, this guy, what is it, seven walks in his last four appearances, I know that he had issues with violations. And I think he told our buddy Rob Bradford that he doesn't really like the new rules with the pitch clock or something along those lines. That one I'm a little bit more concerned about because for the first couple of months, this guy was a lights out closer or the first couple of weeks, I should say. Uh, you know, one thing I'd say about Kenley is it, it reminds me of why Alex Cora loves the word structure and loves a closer, where if you're winning in the ninth inning, the game's over. And that is such a beautiful thing. And Kenley was that for the first month of the season. I don't. I wouldn't say the word "worried" is the right one for me. I I'm just interested to watch him work through it. And we're out here in Southern California now. We're in Arizona. All these people who've been around Kenley tell us he's going to do this. This is what he does. He's going to be awesome for a month, and then he'll go through a couple weeks where he struggles and fights it and finds it. He works his ass off. He's your kind of guy, Brian, where he's out in the outfield at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, pulling a sled with seven 45-pound plates on it. I mean, that's that's who Kenley Jansen is. <laughs> he is going to work his ass off in addition to bring an oxtail that falls off the bone to the clubhouse from his house that he has made to the guy. So <laughs> Kenley Jansen is not a problem. He's going to be fine. Look, I, I think this is the life of a closer, right? I mean, he's just he's going through one of those periods. Last night I thought was better. Uh, the velocity was not there, but the command was better. And he really fundamentally believes that it's just a mechanical issue where he's spinning and flying open on his front side. He's not landing as many of his cutters. So I'm not worried about him in any way. Um, and Paxton, similarly. Now, one thing about James Paxton is his first two starts, he got six days off between the first two starts. Yeah. Yesterday was his first traditional start, four days rest. And by the way, I give him a pass on that. 
It's a different thing. Yep. Teaching your body once again after basically two years to go on regular rest. I'm totally encouraged by everything that Paxton has done. The velocity was there. Just the command was a little bit off, but guess what? I mean, if you're on a red eye and you have to get up at 4 a.m. for the first time in two weeks, your body's going to be different too. And I think that's sort of what's going on with Paxton, pitching on regular rest. I think all of us who talk about sports for a living forget about the normal, physical, human component of this thing. This dude, as with Chris Sale, as of three weeks ago, they're doing things that they hadn't done in years. And watch what, look what happened with Chris. Like it took some time and all of a sudden, oh, right, I'm Chris Sale and I figured out my body and my routines and all this stuff. Paxton is there again. I, I have no doubt that the next one will be better. And I, I just think that with Sale, Paxton, Bayo, Hauk, Whitlock, that's the most important thing for this Red Sox team. They've got a, a really solidified rotation. They're in a good spot there. I, that's what counts in baseball. It doesn't matter whether the offense goes cold for a couple of days or not. If you got five starters you count on every fifth day, then you can roll, and I think that's what this team has. Yeah, Bayo has, like, the easiest 97-98 I've seen since Pedro. Like, I'm not comparing the players, but <laughs> it's just easy. It, it doesn't look like he's trying, and he hits 97. Hey, Will, who do you miss more this year, Deekman not throwing strikes or Sawamore taking an hour to throw a pitch? <laughs> I had to get a Walkman you know, question in. <laughs> I laughed so hard when I saw your tweet about allergic to hard contact or soft contact and swing and miss. That was so funny. Uh, you know what? Uh that's a very hard call. Sawamura, though, I mean, it, 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 with the pitch clock, it's less likely that that's going to happen. True. I cannot tell you how – it drove me insane. It's like 10-1, and Sawamura's taking 75 seconds between pitches. <laughs> we do not miss that uh, at all. So, Sawa, we wish you well in Japan. We do not miss watching you take two minutes between pitches. That's for sure. That is Will Fleming, play-by-play voice of the Red Sox. Will, you got a tea time and enjoy the series over the weekend, man. I expect the Red Sox to take at least two of three in this series. Have a good weekend, my friend. Always great to be with you, Metric, man. Thanks so much. All right, great stuff from my buddy Will Fleming. Cannot wait. This is going to be an awesome weekend. Chris Sale is pitching on Friday night. The Red Sox need a win desperately. And then... Reminder, Game 6 Saturday night. Not that you need a reminder, Game 6 is Saturday night. But we will be recording late Saturday night after that Game 6. So that will be in your feed very early on Sunday morning. And you're at the gym Sunday morning. And by the way, it's a long weekend. You're hanging out by the pool, throwing off the pike on Sunday morning. We will have that game completely recapped for you. Cannot wait for Saturday night, baby. Okay. Remember, you can leave us a voicemail, 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.